0: We started a series of messages last week about um, coming in contact with Jesus and how that changes us, transforms us. And started last week with a discussion of the first encounters Jesus had in the book of John and how those encounters symbolize Jesus Christ calling to himself, calling people to him to follow him. And that what happens in our lives, that we move from curious to committed and committed to people that are spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the book of John was written in order that people might believe. And we're going to be spending some time in the encounters in the book of John Um, This week, though, um, I I was watching some stuff online, reviewing some of the the latest kind of viral hits, things that were going on. and It's gotten to the point where a lot of stuff doesn't kind of fascinate me or interest me anymore. But there was something that I saw that that, that both shocked and uh, interested me and made me curious. Uh, And so I I started kind of investigating a little bit because, see, I'm I'm a golfer. I like to golf. Now, here's the truth. I say that, and I haven't been golfing in almost two years. Because I have four kids, I don't know that y'all know that or not. And so, just time and money and all that, we don't. I don't get to golf. I love to go out there and golf. And uh, and I love. My family used to take uh, vacations. We used to go to Florida with my in-laws and my father-in-law. Every morning, every morning we would get up. And he would say, I'm going to the course, you going with me. And so two or three times during a week of vacation, he and I would head out to the golf course. We'd find different ones around. We always went to Fort Walton Beach area, Destin area, and we'd play. And playing golf in Florida, you are on occasion going to see some wildlife that you don't see around the golf courses here. Now, if you go out to the Hermitage, over in Hermitage, over in, you know, that part over there by the Andrew Jackson's home, if you go there, they got all kinds of sheep and stuff grazing around. In Florida, you don't see woolly sheep, but you do see occasionally snakes, lizards, and gators, right? Anybody see this video, like from a couple of weeks ago? This is on a golf course in Florida, all right? And now I don't have the commentary up because the guy says a couple of things that he probably shouldn't have. But the truth is, if you were that close to a gator that size, you might say some things you shouldn't have either. And, uh, and so this, they, you know, they didn't measure the thing. Nobody walked up to it with a tape measure and, you know, figured out what was going on. But somewhere around 15 feet, it's a mammoth mammoth gator, all right? And just walking on the golf course right down the green, apparently not concerned, people hitting into him or anything. He's just going. And it got me thinking, all right, what would you do if you were playing golf and you saw that? Some of you are like, I do exactly what this dude is doing. Like, if you watch the video, by the way, the the guy with the camera is like, get over there and get close to it so I can get a perspective picture. Like, no, that's all right, I don't really... I want a perspective picture. Let's see how it is, right? What happened if you, you know, I feel like that part of my job here is to, to not only, we're going to walk through scripture here in a minute, but I feel like part of my job is to inform, inform you and, and give you some practical tools for life. And so I just thought, you know, what would you do if a gator encountered you? Because it's not going to be the other way around. You're not encountering a gator. A gator's encountering you, right? And so here I, I pulled this straight from the internet, so it is top-notch advice, all right. First of all, number one, if you get into a gator area, avoid any areas where gators may live. That's that's a wise choice there, right? Two, if you are on land and the gator is not, run. That's good. That's good, right? Number three, if the gator bites you but lets go, he's really not that interested. And you could probably just walk away, which is good. He may not have a limb, but that would be good, all right? But here's the real deal. Now, if the gator clamps on, it means business. Here's what it says. Number one, stay calm. Okay, we'll move to number two, all right? Number two. Fight back strategically, and in case you're wondering, well, what does that mean? I've got that for you because some of you are, nobody's writing this down. All right, here we go, number, here we go. Fight back strategically. First of all, poke the gator in the eyes. It's called the Three Stooges move. Anybody remember Three Stooges, right? Really go, poke him in the eye. Two, hit the gator. Really, here's the thing, okay? I'm going to read the rest of these. But the truth is, this is what you're going to be doing anyways, because you're just going to be flailing at the thing, right? Number next, hit the top of its head as many times as possible. Okay? Third, this one, the one's a little more disturbing. Attack the palladial valve at the back of the gator's throat. Apparently, if you hit that valve, it, it sucks water in and it dies. But here's my thing. If I can see the palladial valve, I am already in too much trouble, all right? And lastly, seek medical attention, all right? And so, I just wanted you to have that because some encounters are more life-changing than others, right? Now we got to switch gears, right? And so this summer, what we're doing is we're talking about not gator encounters, but encounters Jesus had with people and how it transformed their lives. And today, we're going to talk about An encounter that's made possible by something that happened 3,000 years earlier. Because 3,000 years earlier, out in the middle of this desert, there was a guy, and we don't know his name, who was desperate to find something, some kind of water. He could find something to sustain himself. And so he begins to dig. And it's a limestone, a hard digging. It's the desert. And so it's it's parched and dry. And he just digs and he digs and he digs. And you realize they didn't have like front end loaders. They didn't have like shovels that that were made like we do. He's digging mostly by hand with a few tools. And he digs and he digs. And when he hits a hundred feet. You ever dug down a hundred feet? I've dug like two, and that's it. A hundred feet. His dream begins to be realized as stuff starts seeping up from the bottom. And gradually, as he digs with a little more passion, a little more fervor, the water that begins to fill the place fills itself into a well. The Bible tells us that a little bit later, for a thousand pieces, I mean, for a hundred pieces of silver, Jacob would buy that well. And it would literally sustain the people of God for generation upon generation upon generation. But by the time we get to the story we're going to look at today, that well that was so important to the people of Israel for so many years was now stuck in a part of the land that they no longer frequented and they definitely didn't associate people with, with people who did you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. If you don't have your Bible with you, but you've got a smartphone with you, you can go to website, just fbcgilliswill.com slash Samaritan Woman, and the whole scripture from today's there along with, and if you want to do this, even if you've got your Bibles open, my points at the end, you can go ahead and see what they are, alright? All that's up there so you can have for the week, fbcgilliswill dash, I mean, dot com slash Samaritan Woman. What happened is, in John chapter 4, John really begins to shift the narrative of his entire gospel to help us to see stories of people who believed in Jesus. And in the first couple of chapters of John, it's really about a revelation of the fact that Jesus is here and that Jesus is powerful, and that Jesus has come to save, and that we must believe. But then John begins, really in chapter 3, and then really gets into it in chapter 4, where we're going to be today. He begins to say, here are people who encountered Jesus, and because of their encounter with Jesus, they believed. In fact, the end of the book of John, we mentioned this last week, tells us that John wrote the entire book. He says, there are lots of stuff I could have written, but I wrote these particular stories so you would believe. So anytime we come to a story in the book of John, we have to ask the question, what is John teaching us about what it means to believe in Jesus through this? And every paragraph, every story that starts in John chapter 3, John chapter 4, is a description, a new revelation about who Jesus is, about what Jesus can do, about His purpose for our lives. As we jump into this story today, the question is going to be, okay, what is God speaking to us today? And here's what we're going to do. We normally... If you're around, most of the time we'll kind of do a couple of verses and then we'll hit a a point in the midst of that. We're we're going to really kind of tell the whole story and then I'm going to come back and circle back and give you three things that I see from this passage of Scripture today about the encounter of Jesus and Samaritan woman. So here it is, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and then John, who wrote this, is like, you got to understand, it wasn't Jesus that was baptizing, but the disciples were. Jesus wasn't trying to build, at that moment, a, a, a group of people that were devoted to his earthly ministry. He was looking for spiritual stuff. When he found out that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making more than John, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, here's the kind of the point that's interesting here to me. Is that Jesus was not about at this moment in his history, in this moment in his ministry, he really didn't want a large group of people around him. And so it's kind of counterintuitive, counter what we would think, that Jesus would start to get a big crowd, big crowd, big crowd, and then he would go, well, we've got to pull back and get a few people, these people out of here. Sometimes he just did it by leaving. And what happens here is he doesn't want a competition to develop between him and John or between his followers, more accurately, and John's followers that the Pharisees can come in and then use to get either one of them until the time has been fulfilled. And so he thinks, I just got to pull away. We'll see in a couple of chapters later, if you read in John chapter six, Jesus gets a crowd that's too big. He's fed the 5,000. He's got thousands of people hanging around him, looking to him for leadership. And Jesus gets up and gives one of the most difficult messages in the Bible, says that if you're going to follow me, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And The people are like, we're not into that kind of stuff. That's a little crazy. And it says literally that many left him that day. Jesus was thinning the herd. He was getting rid of people saying, I'm not ready for that kind of following because my ministry has to develop at kind of a slow boil. And so Jesus thinks, i got to get out of here. And here's what's interesting to me. If Jesus was just about building an earthly ministry, he already had done enough to get it really off the ground and going strong by this point. But Jesus was about expanding the kingdom. And because of that, he had a different kind of encounter in mind. It says here in verse, at the end of that verse, verse says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, geographically, that made the most sense. And there is some research that suggests that lots of Jews kind of took this route. But they didn't like it, and they didn't speak to people when they did. To go from where he was... from Judea to Galilee. Samaria was right in the middle of that. And we'll talk a little bit more about Samaria in just a minute about why they didn't like each other. But most people would either cross a river and go up the one side or go around the other side instead of going straight through. Now, technically, they were both part of the same country because the Romans saw them as the same people, but they really, really, really did not like each other. I mean, really did not like each other. I mean, you imagine the worst kind of thoughts between two groups of people and that's how the Jews felt about the Samaritans, maybe even a little bit more. It's important to note that in the original language, this had to is an interesting little phrase because it speaks of obedience. And while geographically it made more sense to go through Samaria, there seems to be a deeper meaning tied to it because Jesus is just being obedient to what God has called him to do. And what God had called him to do was to expand the kingdom beyond the Jewish people and begin to speak to those outside of what was the traditionally recognized Jewish faith and to show that the gospel was going to travel to the ends of the earth. He passed through Samaria. So he came to the town in Samaria called Sychar, Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. I find it fascinating that John uses all these descriptions about exactly where it is. Because here's the reality. That in that day and time, they didn't spend a lot of time giving superfluous details, extra details. They just wanted to focus on the main thing and get it down because paper was scarce. You didn't have a lot of writing stuff. They just wanted to use the economy of words as best they could. And yet John says that Samaria, Sychar... Near the field, Jacob's well. Like even a, It's almost like he's giving general to specific instructions about where it is. Now, here's kind of the crazy thing about this. You know, one of the cool things about the Bible, and one of the reasons I believe John put this in there, is because he wants us to realize that this is real stuff that really happened in real places that you can still find today. We don't, we don't, we don't follow some imaginary mythological story. We're, we're at this place now with... Um, with Maddie, Maddie, who my, is my six-year-old, about to be a first grader, when she wants to know every movie we watch, she wants to know, is this real, Dad? Right? Like, did this happen, Dad? So we were watching yesterday um, some triumphant American Girl doll baking story. All right? You've all seen Grace stirs up success, right? Um, blockbuster movie. And we're watching, and she's like, Dad, did this really happen? Did she really win Chef Junior Baking Competition? I was like, and so we have to have this discussion. No, babe, this is, you know, this could, it's, it's realistic, but it could, but it didn't. Here's the thing. We don't follow a religion of realistic fiction. We follow a religion that is based in historical reality. Now, just in case you wonder that, here's the really cool thing. Jacob's well is still exists, and we know where it is. So here's a picture of Jacob's well. They uncovered it It through all the crusades and all of that. Some people thought it had been destroyed, but they've uncovered it. And it's outside near an Orthodox church that's half completed. But Jacob's well is right there. And so here's the cool thing. This is a picture. I mean, think about this for a minute. Now, Obviously, the uh, tile floor wasn't there. It was dirt. But right here around this area is where this conversation took place. This whole conversation you're about to have with Jesus and Samaritan woman happened right there. And if you wanted to get on a plane and spend lots of money getting over there and find this place, you could go stand in the exact place where Jesus, the God incarnate, had a discussion with a woman that we read about today. Now, you may not think that's really cool. I think that is really cool, right? I mean, people spend all kinds of money to go stand in places where other people have been that are not nearly as cool as that. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord today? I'm not going to ask for personal examples of things you've done in places you've been, right? And so, this is where it happened. Back to that scripture. I don't think we finished that part of it. Jacob well was there. And so Jesus was wearied from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, most scholars think, most people, including me, think that that's right at noon. So here's the picture. Jesus traveling his disciples, they get to a spot, it's time to stop. It's, you know, they weren't necessarily on a lunch scheduled time. In fact, most people in that day didn't eat lunch because you didn't have enough food for lunch. You ate breakfast if you had that and you ate supper if you had that. You didn't have time for three squares a day, especially not three squares and 14 snacks a day. You just ate two meals. And at noon, they're traveling. It's the desert. The sun is at the actual apex of where it's going to be for the day and Jesus is there, and he's tired and he's thirsty. Anybody go outside yesterday? Right? Boy, it was pleasant out there, wasn't it? Man, about, we, we, you know, we got out, we, we had some yard work we had to get done, we're traveling. We're going to the Southern Baptist Convention this afternoon traveling. And so we had, you know, when you travel, the beautiful thing is you get to travel and have fun. The bad thing is you got to get everything ready to travel to get ready to go have fun. And so we're doing yard work and all that. And we thought we had about an hour, hour and a half of yard work. We all get out there. We tackle it. It's going to be great. 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm mowing the yard. Eli's weeding. Susan's over there getting some weeds pulled. He gets Eli. see Eli get the loppers out, start chopping down some of our shrubs. And then, um, Five hours later, I realized, I think we're done now, right? Anybody ever have that happen? Like an hour job turns into five on a day when the heat index is 148? Like it's it's fun, right? It's exciting. And when we hit like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, we realized we're tired and we're thirsty. But what we don't realize is during that whole time, I'd been drinking something the whole time. Had water out there, had Gatorade out there. Jesus and his disciples lived in a time when water was scarce. You didn't go get a water fountain. You didn't turn on a faucet. Like you had to get it at a well. And they're moving through enemy country where nobody's going to go out of their way to help. And they get there and Jesus is legitimately thirsty and his disciples are legitimately hungry. We know that because we'll see in a minute they go into town. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now that little phrase gives us all kinds of information. She was a woman, so she was not to speak or to talk or to have conversation or really even to make eye contact with a foreigner like Jesus. She's a Samaritan. They did not like each other. And we'll find out later she is completely immoral. Now, we could kind of imply that even from this passage because nobody came to get water at noon because it was too hot. I don't know if you realize this, but there are still about half of the world's population that has to walk to get their water every day. And there are women, it's still primarily women in those cultures, women who today still will walk half their day to and from the place to get water for their families. And everybody did it at the crack of dawn or first light because that's when it was the coolest to get the water for the day. They would leave, they would get the water, come back, and then they would leave as it was getting close to dusk so they could get the water and get back. The only reason you would go in the middle of the day is to avoid people. The woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus says to her, next verse, Jesus said, give me a drink. His disciples had gone in to get food. Now you read that originally, it sounds a little like short. Jesus is a little curt where they're like, hey, woman, give me something to drink here, right? I mean, if that happened, if you, were, if, if you were, had a spouse and y'all were at home and the husband was sitting in the recliner watching a ball game on TV and the wife was up doing a lot of housework and he says, hey, woman, grab me something to drink, that's not probably going to go over that well. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord today, right? Probably not. But that's not the way he says it here. Really, in the original language, it's like um, it's a respectful term. You know, it's like in chapter 2 of John when he looks at his mom and says, Woman, what does that have to do with me? It's a respectful term. He's like, Give me something to drink, please. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had how many dealings? No. How many? No dealings with Samaria. Here's the short version of why they didn't like each other. Long, long time before this, a thousand years before this, the two groups split. There was a group in the north and a group in the south, ten tribes in the north, ten parts of the family in the north, two parts in the south. The people in the north were the first to get overrun by an enemy, the Assyrians. When the Assyrians overran them, they took away most of their men, the Jewish men, and took them to Assyria. And they imported Assyrian men, and they made the Assyrian men marry the Jewish women. And they created a race. Now the reason ancient civilizations did that was to destroy your culture. And so in the north, there were what they called half-breeds, half-Assyrian, half-Jews, and that just filtered down for generation upon generation. Also during that time, they decided they didn't like parts of the Bible, and so they were going to believe the first five books of the Bible. That's all they were going to study. And they set up a place and said, this is where we're supposed to worship. You're not supposed to go to Jerusalem. And so there was tension between the two groups. But it came down to the thing that the southern people said, you abandon our faith, you abandon our fathers, you abandon our God when you intermarried with those people. And we will never associate with you again. And we know that throughout the Old Testament, those tensions never cease. In fact, you get to Ezra and Nehemiah, and when the Jewish people are coming back from exile, the southern group of people are coming back from exile. As they're coming back, the Samaritans are taking their opportunity to make fun of them and ridicule them for the defeat that they had suffered. We know from the book of Nehemiah that when Nehemiah is trying to build the wall around the city of Jerusalem, that the Samaritan Sanballat, the Samaritan, is coming to down and declaring that they will never work, that it's a puny little wall, and that nothing good's going to come from it. He's trying to discourage them and embarrass them. We know that the tensions ratcheted up year after year after year after year to the point they literally didn't have anything to do with each other. And Jesus doesn't ignore her, but he says this to her in the next verse If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, we read that, and immediately we think spiritual kind of stuff. But in her mind, she's thinking of the fact that the well that they had in Jacob was a stagnant well, that if you reach down a hundred yards, a hundred. Um, it's down, 100 feet down. If you get down in there and you pull it up, it's going to be a pool of water. And stagnant water is always worse than running water. And she imagined that Jesus was saying, if you would have known who I was, I would have told you where a stream of water is, where you wouldn't have to come to this well every day. You wouldn't have to dig 100 feet down. You could just stick your bucket in a stream of water and it'd be good running water. And so she looks at him and says that, okay, that's great. If you can tell me where that is. Next verse. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. That sounds good, Jesus. That well's deep. It's 100 feet. Where are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than Jacob? She's really kind of antagonizing here, making fun of him earlier. She said, he's the one that gave us the well. We drank it for himself as did his sons and his livestock. She said, are you greater than him that you can find water that wasn't here? This is the only water we know in this area. It's not living water. It's not a stream of water. It is stagnant water. Jesus in the next verse answers her and says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of that water that will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become him a spring of welling up eternal life. He says to her, listen, if I'm going to give you something. Now we know, obviously, he's talking about spiritual stuff. She doesn't get the clue. You ever had a conversation with someone Where you are, you are telling them exactly what's going on, and you feel confident that they're on the same page with you, and you're talking down road A, and they're talking down road B, and you both think you're understanding each other, and you get to the end of the conversation, you're like, uh, we are not on the same page here. Have you ever had that? Any of you spouses ever had that with your spouse? Like, yeah, and then you get to the point, you're like, what do you mean? We've got to go over there. We we never talked about that. Oh, we talked about that. We talked about it yesterday. No, we didn't talk about that. Well, and I told you. No, that's not what I thought you were saying. I thought you were saying we had no. Anybody? Okay. Amen. Thank you, David. I appreciate that. I see that hand. All right. So that's what's happening. Next verse, she says to him. She goes, "Give me the water." I don't want to be thirsty. I don't have to come here. If you can give me that water, I'll never have to come back here again. It'll be unbelievable. I won't have to see anybody. Nobody can make fun of me. Nobody. I won't have to meet people like you out here. It'll be awesome. Just give me the water. Jesus realizes, you know what? This ain't going anywhere. we got to change tactics a little bit. So he says, just, just go get your husband. She goes, I would, but I don't have a husband. I know you don't have a husband, Jesus says. You're right. You had five. And the one you're with now is not your husband. Now, I I don't need to explain to you what the one you're with now means, do I? I can if I need to, but I don't have to, right? Okay. So we've got a situation where this woman has had five different husbands and is currently living with another man. And the woman said, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now, we're not going to continue the rest of the story reading here. Many of you know it. She begins to have a discussion about worship with him. But it all comes back to the fact that she comes to believe, because of this primarily, that Jesus is the Messiah. And here's what I want to see. Three things that I want us to see out of this, and we're going to do do these quickly. But I think they're vitally important things. This is an unbelievable story about Jesus' grace, mercy, showing God's hospitality. But three things we see in this passage, and the first thing is this, that the gospel is for everyone. This woman had every possible strike you could have against you. She was an immoral Samaritan woman. An immoral Samaritan woman. And Jesus goes out of his way to have an interaction with her. Now, Scripture doesn't make us understand that Jesus knew she would be there, but he knew his father was calling him to go. And he knew the possibility was he would run into a Samaritan. And when the Samaritan woman came out, he didn't blink for a minute to think, this woman needs to know who I am. Now, the rest of the Gospel of John will have all kinds of instances where Jesus performs miracles and people believe because of the miracles. And sometimes we read this story and we think, oh, it's not that big of a miracle. He just knew her story. But the truth is, if you're the person whose life is unveiled and exposed before God, you know in that moment that something supernatural is happening. And what Jesus communicates through John chapter four and what John wants us to understand is that it does not matter where you're from, who your parents are, what you've done, what color your skin is, what actions you may have been involved in, what philosophies you may have had, what belief system you were brought up in. It doesn't matter. None of that disqualifies you from hearing and responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what that says to those of us in the room who are people that are seeking Jesus is this. It really does not matter what your past is. From the moment you encounter Jesus, your life can be radically different. And so none of us in this room are beyond the reach and the grace and the love and the mercy of God's salvation and God's arm. He desires for all of us to be saved. What it also says to those of us in this room who are part of God's family is this. There is no room for discrimination of any kind within the body of Jesus Christ. And I just want to be real honest. I want to be real. I just want to lay it out there and say this. okay, The church in America ought to be the leader in issues of racial reconciliation within this country. And for too many years and on too many occasions, it is not the leader, it is the instigator. And the people within now not open publicly church, but the people within it are instigators and people that are throwing the fire. It is inexcusable for a person who has been saved by Jesus Christ to think that a person of another race is somehow inferior are not worthy of the gospel or sharing the table with you. And we ought to be ashamed as the church in America for our part that we have played in making people think that they're somehow not able to be a part of what we have. Can I just tell you this? Nothing displays the glory and the majesty and the power of Jesus' love and grace than when people who would never associate outside these walls come together inside for the purpose and the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. And we must be vigilant about making sure That everyone has an opportunity to hear the gospel. And it's not just racial things that sometimes prevent us. Sometimes it's socioeconomic. Sometimes it's lifestyle choices. Sometimes it's philosophical beliefs. And here's the thing. No one has ever gone farther than they can go to get away from Jesus. Than the woman at the well with Jesus. As believers. We must be passionately, compassionately Extending the gospel to every single person we come in contact with. Second thing. Jesus desires to satisfy the deepest longing of the human heart. I love the interchange here because they just don't get it. She just doesn't get it. She just keeps thinking, I'm just thirsty, Jesus. I need some water. I've waited all morning to get here. I came here without anybody else around. I didn't want to see anybody. I just wanted to get in here, get my water, get home. Take care of all of that. Take care of my family, who's the guy that I'm living with now. I just wanted to take care of that. And I come out here and you're trying to get me in a conversation. Just give me the water. Just let me give me what you've got so I can go home and take care of it. Jesus the whole time is speaking to the fact that just because you have a physical thirst doesn't mean that there's not a real thirst within And he uses what all of us have come to understand. We may never be as thirsty as the people of Jesus' day, but we understand what it's like to be thirsty, to desire, to want, to to long after something, to quench the thirst of your body. And he says there are things that are deeper than that that we must have filled. I read this week about David Foster Wallace, who is one of the top um, of his profession, award-winning, best-selling postmodern novelist who since passed away. He is not in any ways a Christian man. He's not in any ways a follower of Jesus. But he—I mean—he was a guy that liked to push the envelope. He once wrote a sentence that was more than a thousand words long. That's exciting, isn't it? Right before, a few years before he died, he spoke the graduation ceremony at Kenyon College, and he said this. He said, "Everybody, this is non-believer, non-Christian. This is a postmodernist kind of do whatever you want to do guy. Everybody worships." The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe, he's going to hedge his bets here, the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And as I read that this week, I thought if there was one message I could get across to young people, to young adults, to families today, it is this, that anything you try to put in place of God will eat you alive. Now, I didn't put all this on the screen, but he goes on to say this. He says, if you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you in the ground. If you worship power, you end up feeling weak and afraid. Then you need ever more power over others to numb you, to your own fear. Worship your intellect. You just want to be seen as smart. And you end up feeling stupid and a fraud. Always on the verge of being found out. Look, he says, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious and they are just simply our default settings. That our, my, our bodies crave something. And when we place our trust in that, they eat you alive. And here's the deal. Jesus is saying to this woman, you've put your trust in everything else and it's has eaten you alive. And the only place to find complete fulfillment is in me. And I'm not naive enough to think that in this room, even in a room of people that for the most part are committed to Jesus and trying to do right, and you're here on one of the hottest days of the year on the middle of summer when you could have checked out. I realize that, that many of you are here and you are really trying to live for the Lord. But I'm not naive enough to think that there aren't things in your life that you're trying to fill the space that only God can fill. Image and materialism and pornography and relationships. And the further you dig, instead of finding that water at the end, you find nothing but more and more emptiness. You see, even when we follow Jesus, following Jesus, accepting Him as our Savior, does not immediately guarantee that we have that kind of intimate relationship, but it gives us the opportunity to seek it out and to enter into it. In the book of Hebrews, it says to draw near to God with confidence. In the book of James, he says draw near to God. The idea is that once we come into a saving relationship with Jesus, we must then seek Jesus with everything we have. And here's the last thing and then we're done. So this passage shows us that Jesus delivers on what he promises. He delivers. He's not some infomercial on TV that's going to sell you some product and it doesn't quite work the way you think it's going to work. Anybody got any workout equipment somewhere in your house that never quite did the job it was supposed to do? I need one of those things that will work me out without me knowing it. Like, I need that, right? He delivers on what he promises. You know, my favorite part from last week, we didn't even talk about this last week. But my favorite part from last week is Jesus, you know, they have all those guys come and Jesus says to him, Come and see. And then he says, Come and see, and when you see, you're going to see a ladder extended to heaven, and you're going to see heaven opened up, just like Jacob. And then we get here, and we're reminded again of Jacob. Well, what was special about Jacob? Jacob had an interaction with the Lord, where heaven and earth divided, and for a moment, everything kind of came together. And what Jesus tells this woman, what Jesus tells uh, those guys from last week is, that if you place your trust in me, if you trust me, it will be better and grander and more extravagant and more than you can ask or imagine. I will not deliver only what I promised. I'll deliver above what I promised. Here's the end of the story. So she, we don't have the conversion moment, we don't have that moment where it's the aha moment. But we know she became a follower of Jesus because look what happens. So the woman left her water, just left it there, and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man told me everything that I did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of town and were coming to him. So she drops it all. She understands this is the guy. Now what I love about this particular picture is she came at noon to the well because she didn't want anybody to see her. And then the moment she has an encounter with Jesus, she drops what she's doing and she runs to find people in town. She's gone from I don't want anybody to see me to i got to find whoever will listen listen. Here's what's next. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging. So here's what happens. She runs away. Maybe the disciples were starting to come and she just drops her bucket and runs. I don't know. But the disciples are coming. Maybe they didn't see her at all. They get there and they're like, Jesus, you know what? A, we got you some food. And he's like, I'm, I'm not hungry. I'm like, what do you mean you're not hungry? Did you give him something? To eat? Peter, did he get something to eat? I don't know. He got something to eat. They're, they're asking these questions about what do you, you eat? What are you talking about? You don't need anything to eat. And Jesus just tells them this, and I love this passage what Jesus says. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Don't say there are four months that come to harvest. I tell you lift your eyes and see that the fields are white. And here's what I love is this picture This picture is that whatever happens, she drops her bucket she runs to town. The disciples come back as they're sitting around talking. Maybe they passed her running back to town. They're sitting there talking. Jesus is talking. They're like, did you eat? He's like, I don't need to eat. What do you mean you don't need to eat? We've got food. Do you want to eat? And I'm good. Well, who gave you food? Nobody gave me food, guys. I'm okay. He says, you need to quit talking about that and think about the bigger picture here. And I remember that my professor at seminary, Roy Fish, told me that what he thinks happens in this passage is that she goes back to the town, she gets the people, they start to walk out to Jesus. As they're walking out to Jesus, Jesus and His disciples are having this discussion around the well. They're having this discussion. And Jesus says, guys, cut it out. Quit worrying about what we're eating. You think the harvest is coming in four months. It's now. And He turns them and He has them look to the crowd that is coming towards them at the well. And as the crowd gathers closer to the well, he says, look, the fields are white to harvest. That's our mission. That's our goal. I've got two simple questions for you today to finish. First of all, is there something in your life that you're trying to fill the God-shaped hole with that you realize and you know that it is not satisfying you at all? And this morning you'd be willing to say, I want to give it up and I want to follow him. Secondly, if you're here, what does it look like for you to do God's will and being part of addressing the harvest of people that need to know him? Let's pray together.